This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis, in for Ryan Warner. It seemed like a win-win for couples around the world who wanted to adopt children and for South Korean children who needed a family. But some of those children have terrible memories of being separated from their lives in South Korea. The moment that I kind of knew something was going to happen was the time my grandmother took me to the train station with my brother. And, you know, there was a stranger there. She handed us off to to him. And uh, we went off on the train with the stranger. That interview is one of dozens a Denver man has done over the last few years. He spoke with South Korean children, now adults, who were adopted into families in the U.S. and other countries like Australia and Sweden. Glenn Morey himself was adopted from Korea, and he's created a website with video profiles of the people he interviewed around the world. Morey joins us in the studio, and Glenn, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks. I'd like to start with your experience. You were adopted by a family in 1960 when you were six months old. What is it about your own experience that made you want to do this project? Well, we we all need stories to make sense of our lives. You know, I mean, you, you need to know why you're short or why you're tall, why you have the eyes that you have, and and uh, I grew up without that, and as a result. The older I got, the more I became um, very curious about where I'd come from and what my place was in the world and how I ended up where where I was, which was Littleton, Colorado. And and this project and and meeting other adoptees, uh, that was the my connection to all of that. These adoptions were mainly between the 1950s and 2010. Why did they start in the first place? Well, after the Korean War, there were some 2 million children who had been uh, displaced from their families of origin somehow. And uh, many of those children were of mixed race. They were part Korean, but they were also uh, the product of of soldiers from the U.S. and from Europe as well. And uh, – uh, those children were destined to have a very, very difficult time in Korea, and Korea was indeed looking for a solution for these children, and inter-country adoption was that solution. Uh, it was their way to remove these children from the country, uh, something that <clears throat> that uh, the receiving countries, of course, felt some responsibility for as well. There was a lot of racism in South Korea, and that's why folks wanted to adopt them out. Is that part of it? Yeah. These these children, and we interviewed a number of them uh, because many of them were adopted as older children. They recall uh, the taunting and the teasing and the even violence toward them uh, and knowing that they were always going to experience that in Korea. And so for many of them, leaving Korea was absolutely, even consciously for them as children, uh, the best possible thing for them. You say these Korean adoptions set the stage for other adoptions from Asia and elsewhere during that time. What made other countries follow South Korea's lead? Well, I think that... Uh, there's always a need. Uh, families who who want children but can't have children of their own, 
And I think domestic adoption in many countries is difficult and time-consuming, long waiting lists, et cetera. Uh, at that time, adopting from another country was certainly a more uh, expeditious kind of way to form a family uh, for those families. And, and I think that uh, uh, it was also seen and certainly positioned in the media as an act of humanitarian rescue. Mm. Uh, there was a picture created by the media of these children, and this was in many cases a true picture, of these children and babies in orphanages and in dire need of, of a home and, and certainly at risk uh, in those orphanages. In fact, the orphanage that I came out of uh, in, near Seoul, Korea, had a 25% mortality rate. And so it, it's not unreasonable for me to think that my adoption potentially saved my life. Many of the adults you interviewed who were adopted as kids have memories of leaving their families. Let's listen to more of the story we heard in the introduction. The man we heard from remembers leaving his grandmother after she handed him over to a stranger. He says he knew at the time he was just being given away. Of course I was scared. We were both crying. And, you know, the one of the last things that my grandmother said was, hey, you know, when you grow up, come visit me. And uh, that is, is very, very distinct. And uh, it, it makes me emotional to, to talk about it. And a lot of the reason uh, folks were in orphanages were, were poverty, was poverty in South Korea at the time and war, Right. Poverty, war, uh, disrupted families, uh, meaning divorce. Uh, um, there were many, many reasons. Uh, uh, certainly the shame of, of, of unmarried mothers contributed greatly, mm. particularly during those times, uh, uh, the early 60s and, and even into the 70s. Uh, disruption of family, I think, was uh, along with poverty – contributed the most. We'll talk in a bit about those who go back to visit South Korea. Some, like this man, knew their biological families. A lot were in orphanages. Um, and I guess you don't have any memories from South Korea. You were six months old when you were adopted. But for all of you, you must be intensely curious about what happened and why you were adopted. How many knew just bits and pieces of their stories, say, from adoptive parents? Well, first of all, many of us were adopted as infants, and so we don't have memories. Um, but there are these files that our our adoptive parents typically had in their possession, and and these files contained information both from the orphanage as well as from the agency, and and typically, as the adopted child grew older, the parents would share that information and make that available. Uh, and and then when the adopted child becomes an adult, it's it's very common for then that adult to take that information and try to expand upon it by contacting the agency and the orphanage and maybe even going in search of their family of origin, their birth family. Um, so <clears throat> it's uh, – but it's not uncommon to be uh, completely without – any information. I have a file 
but there's really nothing in it that could help me um, determine the story of my origin. Um, there was no note attached to me. There was no information attached to me at all. Uh, I was simply abandoned in Seoul uh, and left to be processed through City Hall to what orphanage could, whatever orphanage could take me in. One of the issues you talk a lot about is race. Many of the adoptive families, I think most were white. And while today parents might have talked to their adopted children about these racial differences, it was a different time when these adoptions started decades ago. Here's a clip from one of the folks you interviewed. My twin brother and I were adopted to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We grew up there our entire childhood. Our adoptive father was Norwegian-American, and our adoptive mother was German-American. And, of course, this was in the 1960s and early 1970s in, in Milwaukee. So it was a long time ago. There was virtually no consciousness around race. Um, the way I like to describe it is that basically I grew up uh, feeling like a Martian who had arrived from outer space in a spaceship. And years later, uh, when I met other adoptees, it was like uh, happening upon a convention of Martians and spaceships. How often did you hear this, that these kids felt like they really stood out because of their race? Well, this was almost an entirely uh, uh, an entirely typical story uh, that we heard. Um, most adoptees were adopted into families that were that were white, uh, so transracially adopted. Most were adopted into communities that were predominantly or entirely white, uh, and in many cases uh, rural. So this is not uncommon. And, and, and while I wish I could say that this story was limited, this kind of story that this, that this man talked about was limited to those of us who were adopted maybe during the 60s or even the 70s, it's really not the case. Uh, my experience after talking to these people, having interviewed people born all the way from the 50s to the 90s, um, was that this story barely changed. And I think the biggest reason it didn't change is, is that there are attitudes about race in our society, uh, and, and maybe it's limited to the U.S., but it doesn't seem to be according to our interviews. There are attitudes that, that, per, that uh, continue to today, like um, race isn't important. We're all colorblind. We, we, I don't see you as Korean. Uh, I don't see you as being a, of a different race, which might sound in some way socially right. But the truth is that these adopted children often took this information to mean that nobody wanted to talk about their race, that in fact they weren't supposed to talk about their race and that to acknowledge race even was somehow – wrong or shameful even. And so from a very early age, many, many adoptees have learned, transracial adoptees learn to not talk about this with their parents and with other people. 
And so they go through this same process that the man from Chicago went through where where they are required to learn how to be the race that they are by themselves in isolation. And they do that by studying other ethnic groups many times, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps African-American uh, groups where they're able to learn the language of being racial and what it means to be something other than white, what it means to be something other than privileged. And and I think that almost everyone we talked to described such a process, no matter what era they were adopted in. Was this all negative? How much appreciation did the folks you interviewed feel for their adoptive families? Uh, certainly some of them were in loving homes, a lot of them perhaps. Well, actually, most of the people we talked to were raised in loving homes. Um, but that's not the determining factor on how people feel about their origins. So you can be happy about your upbringing and where you are today in life and still be sad about the fact that your origin is either a black hole of information or your origin is somehow disturbing. People who found out that they were products of very violent situations or products of of very uh, – uh, uh, situations that that might have even resulted in their not even being on the planet. Um, so, so it's possible, I believe, to be a happy person, grateful person, thankful person for your circumstances, but at the same time to have very, very complicated feelings about the way that you came into the world. Glenn, many thanks for joining us. Thank Glenn- you. Glenn Morey spent years interviewing adults adopted from South Korea as children. His project is called Side by Side, Out of a South Korean Orphanage and Into the World. You can find the video profiles and more information at CPR.org. Colorado companies could soon be making deliveries to the moon. NASA plans to hire private industry to take their experiments to the lunar surface. And on the list of approved bidders are Colorado's Lockheed Martin and Deep Space Systems. Professor Jack Burns of the University of Colorado Boulder served on President Trump's transition team for NASA. And Jack, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Well, thank you, Andrea. It's good to be here. This program is part of President Trump's initiative to return American astronauts to the moon. We've heard a lot in the past about getting to Mars. Why switch back to the moon? Well, the view is that the moon is um, is an important stepping stone to get to Mars. Mars is very, very hard to get to. It takes um, eight to nine months of travel. Uh, it requires um, advanced uh, protection from uh, space radiation, which we uh, have not quite perfected yet, uh, propulsion systems uh, and landing systems uh, that are going to require maybe decades before we're ready. The moon, on the other hand, is nearby. It's only three days away. And the technologies are in hand to begin developing it and to learn how to live and work on an, on an alien hostile body. 
So under this program, NASA won't build and launch its own spacecraft. It'll pay for a ride from the private sector. How does that work? Yeah, that's that's right. And it's part of a strategy that NASA has begun to employ over the last decade that has started off with um, low-Earth low, uh, low orbit. Um, there's the uh, commercial resupply to the space station and the commercial crew program, which is underway, in which NASA is buying services to transport payloads and astronauts to the space station. So fast forward, we're going to do the same thing now. NASA is going to do the same thing in terms of buying services of contractors to uh, bring payloads to the surface of the moon uh, for NASA. And we're not talking about sending people yet. What will be on board? Well, um, NASA is most interested in uh, bringing scientific payloads and payloads that will help understand the um, environment of the moon and exploration, Uh, maybe uh, uh, things like um, that I'm working on, uh, low-frequency radio telescopes Mm. for the lunar far side, uh, but also things like drills, um, and excavation tools to um, uh, mine for water at the poles of the moon. Um, water um, in space is a very, very valuable commodity because, among other things you can do, you can break it up into hydrogen and oxygen and make rocket fuel. Hmm. How do you send uh, store all these tools that are being sent to the moon? Um, they're just – they're packaged up in um, – uh, these first rounds of flights to the moon, uh, the payloads are going to be small, probably uh, a few uh, kilograms or so. Uh, the Lockheed Martin uh, McCandless lander is uh, going to be capable of taking several hundred kilograms of uh, payload to the surface of the moon. Um, and there they'll sit and operate for a few weeks, a few months, maybe even mm. a few years. Mm. Um, these contracts could be worth $2.6 billion over the next 10 years. Let's talk about the two Colorado companies who will be bidding for a piece of that pie. First, Lockheed Martin in Littleton. What are its advantages to winning some of these contracts? Well, I think they have um, a long history. Um, they are the largest of the, I think it's nine companies that were chosen uh, to deliver payloads. So uh, they, uh, they've been very successful in um, landing uh, spacecraft, unmanned spacecraft on Mars recently. I think their plan is to um, adapt some of those landers. So they'll be ready to go more quickly. Um, and they're also, I think, capable of bringing larger payloads to the surface um, of the moon. It's interesting that Lockheed was the only large uh, commercial space company to have bid on this, uh, what NASA is calling the CLIPS program. Right. The other Colorado company on the short list is Deep Space Systems. It's a female-owned private company that was founded in 2001. It has just 65 employees, and it's provided hardware for NASA missions before. Uh, So you aren't surprised to see a small company like this on the list compared to, say, a Lockheed Martin. 
No, not not at all. And specifically with deep space uh, systems, uh, they've worked collaboratively with Lockheed for years. For example, um, in developing the avionics system on the upcoming um, Orion space vehicle, which is going to be the uh, NASA's uh, next exploration vehicle to go from the Earth to the Moon. So they've got a lot of experience under their belt. Even though they're not a large company, they've built components before that have been very successful. I understand these companies will also have other customers paying to send things to the moon. Who might those customers be? Uh, what will they be sending? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question, and it, it opens up the new philosophy of having these public-private partnerships and these commercial uh, vendors because other countries, um, space programs, whether they be France, India, uh, Japan, Canada – um, are likely to be interested in uh, having some of these payloads transported to the moon um, inexpensively. And um, individual other other uh, companies, uh, you could envision, for example, uh, maybe a biotech company uh, interested in experimenting uh, on the surface of the moon with uh, radio uh, – with um, uh, uh, radiation protection gear, uh, or growing uh, biopharmaceuticals um, on the moon. Mm. Uh, and then finally, there's also entertainment industry. Uh, maybe uh, companies like Disney uh, will be interested in doing um, a uh, real-time uh, ride that would involve capturing the environment of the moon uh, and then playing that back uh, for rides at uh, Disney World. Wow. NASA has been criticized as being too risk-averse. Critics say that makes it harder to make rapid strides in exploring space. With the moon deliveries, the NASA director seems to be managing expectations. He's warned that half of them could fail. Do you see this approach, you know, outsourcing to private companies as helping NASA take more risks? Possibly. Um, Companies, private industries have been traditionally a little less risk-averse. They obviously have to um, be careful and um, uh, their their stockholders are looking for returns. But on the other hand, NASA over the last 30 years or so has become extreme um, in its position for uh, risk aversion. So yes, maybe this could change. Thanks, Jack. You're welcome. Jack Burns is a professor of astrophysics at CU Boulder who served on President Trump's NASA transition team. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Most people grow up and live in cities, but research has found that people in rural areas have a big advantage. Their immune systems work better. CU professor Chris Lowry says the reason may lie in the soil, that is bacteria in the soil. He's studying whether that rural mix can be captured in a medicine that could pa- help people with everything from allergies to psychiatric issues. Eventually, Lowry says, we might see what he calls a farm in a pill. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with that fundamental premise that folks who grow up in rural areas have stronger immune systems. Why do urban people seem to have less resistance to some diseases? So this has been worked out most clearly in the context of allergies and asthma. 
And people that grow up on farms, particularly dairy farms, seem to have protection against allergy and asthma. So the rates are much lower in 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 children that live on farms and even in adults that have been raised on farms. And what is it exactly that people are exposed to in rural areas that gives them better immune systems? So there was a recent study that provided some insight into this this question. They studied children that were growing up on on Amish farms in Indiana and compared these to children that were growing up on Hutterite farms in South Dakota. So these two populations are interesting because they share a common genetic origin. However, their farming practices are very different. Mm. So the Amish tend to live on single-family farms. They use horses for plowing the fields. They uh, are in close proximity to the farm animals. Whereas the Hutterite populations use industrialized farming, including tractors. And what they found was that the dust from the, the homes of the Amish children was able to prevent allergic airway uh, responses in mouse models. And they, they also demonstrated that this is because elements of the dust are interacting with the human immune system and the mouse immune system in a way that provides protection against allergy and asthma. So is it that the immune system is overreacting? That's what we think. So as humans have moved to urban environments, the idea, which is really based on the hygiene hypothesis or the old friends hypothesis, is that we've lost contact with certain types of microbes that throughout human evolution have provided us with a a diverse microbial environment that provides protection against inflammation. Now, in urban environments where we don't have exposure to those types of microorganisms, our immune system is is hyperreactive. In in effect, it's an inappropriate level of inflammation that you find in people uh, growing up and living in cities. You also believe, as do other scientists, that the immune system plays a role in mental health. Can you talk about that? That's right. We know that chronic low-grade inflammation is a risk factor for multiple psychiatric disorders, including depression, uh, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, um, in in military personnel, in in Marines, we know that individuals that have high biomarkers of inflammation at boot camp then get deployed, come back from deployment. They're, They're at higher risk for getting... Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder after combat. And so this this inappropriate level of inflammation, we see that as a risk factor. It's consistent across different stress-related psychiatric disorders. And our, our thinking is if we can design interventions to to prevent this inappropriate inflammation, then perhaps we can lower the risk of, of these disorders. And let's talk about some of the science. Um, what kind of studies have been done to prove that idea that there's this link between the immune system and psychiatric issues? So uh, we know that having elevated biomarkers of inflammation is associated with increased risk for development of PTSD, major depression, and anxiety disorders. Also, we know that in 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 the normal course of treatment for certain medical conditions where the the physicians are are giving pro-inflammatory mediators to patients that very significant 
proportion of those individuals will go on and develop depression. And so you can simply cause depression by overactivating the immune system. And there, there are many other arguments that have been made that inappropriate levels of inflammation, in fact, can are not only a risk factor, but can be causal for the onset of some psychiatric disorders. And what do you mean pro-inflammatory? So pro-inflammatory are... Um, are 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 basically molecules that are released by immune cells that drive a process of inflammation and so inflammation is a process where immune cells traffic to sites of injury um and we can see that when we have a, a wound in in the skin it becomes red there's vasodilation immune cells are aggregating at these sites and inflammation is really designed to fight off pathogens so throughout human evolution this was adaptive in the sense that if you have a wound, you have an injury, the immune system is activated, immune cells traffic to these sites in order to to fight off pathogens. The problem is that many of the stressors in urban environments are really psychological stressors, and they're not associated with with wounding or tissue damage. And and so um, what we're finding is that individuals that grow up in cities have an exaggerated immune response simply to a psychosocial stressor, being psychologically stressed. And we think that this is really a maladaptive response and is increasing risk of psychiatric disorders in in urban environments. I've heard different things um, that depression can cause autoimmune disorders and that autoimmune disorders can lead to depression. Is there something of a chicken and egg question? Well, you, that's an that's an excellent comment. We know that there is an association, and I'll I'll um, talk about a recent study where they looked at rates or the risk of developing autoimmune disease in in post traumatic stress disorder compared that to other psychiatric disorders and also to healthy populations. And what you find is that people that have a diagnosis of post traumatic stress disorder have a much higher risk of also having an autoimmune disease, any autoimmune disease. But they also have higher risk of specific autoimmune diseases like thyroiditis and inflammatory bowel disease. This is exactly what we might predict if individuals that grow up in urban environments don't have the capacity to control the immune response and consequently, the immune system overreacts even to self-antigens, which is what, what is causing the autoimmune disease. What's to say that people in rural areas are less prone to the types of issues you're talking about, like PTSD and depression? So um, the most convincing study was a recent meta-analysis where they looked at multiple studies that have compared urban and rural populations and find that overall in Western urban countries, including the United States, there's a higher risk of uh, depression compared to rural environments. We've also conducted a study recently in Germany with colleagues, uh, Stefan Reber and his colleagues at University of Ulm in Bavaria. And we, we wanted to test this idea that people that grow up in cities have an overactive immune response and that this may be a risk factor for psychiatric disorders. And we, we tested that in, in, a, in a laboratory environment. And essentially, that's exactly what we found when we compared people that grew up on farms uh, that were exposed to farm animals and compared these young men to men that grew up in cities of over 100,000 people without pets. We found that 
simply in response to a, a psychological stressor in the laboratory, people that grew up in the city had a much exaggerated, a much stronger immune response compared to people that grew up on farms. And this this is a psychosocial stressor that we use frequently in in uh, in psychiatry called the Trier Social Stress Test. On the other hand, a 15-year study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show people in rural areas are more likely to commit suicide than those in urban areas. How does that figure into this? So that's an important point. Um, what what we believe is that the inflammation is is a risk factor, but there are many other risk factors, including your genetic composition, so the DNA you inherit from your parents, and also socioeconomic factors. So there's there's increasing rates of suicide uh, across the United States, particularly in young people uh, at this time. And these changes are really too fast to be explained by changes in the rise in urban urban uh, living. Mm. And so there are other factors, some of which may be economic, um, that are also increasing uh, rates of suicide in the United States. So just quickly, let's go to farm and appeal. Um, we mentioned it earlier. What is it that you're trying to achieve? So we're looking for a way to, to utilize um, something that we find in the soil to that can mimic the effects of growing up on a farm. And we're focusing on soil-derived bacteria. These are called mycobacteria. And humans co-evolved with these mycobacteria throughout human evolution. And it, it seems that they've co-evolved with humans in a way that they can drive anti-inflammatory responses. So they can prevent this inappropriate inflammation. And they can do so for long periods of time. So we we find in our preclinical studies that a single a single injection can protect against exaggerated inflammation for, for at least a month mm. um, after the injection. We also, we also find that it can prevent stress-induced anxiety. It enhances fear extinction after um, development of, of uh, conditioned fear and, and simply seems to promote stress resilience. And these again, these effects are long-lasting, lasting weeks to uh, at least a month. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Chris Lowry is an associate professor of integrative physiology at the University of Colorado Boulder. We've been talking about the idea of creating a so-called farm in a pill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of the CPR News podcast, Purplish. Our latest episode looks at how now former Governor John Hickenlooper managed to sign gun reform in a purple state. Let's examine our laws and make the changes needed to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. As Hickenlooper steps onto the national stage, a look back at one of his toughest moments as Colorado's governor. What that says about him as a potential president. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis, in for Ryan Warner. Colorado's State House is an exclusive club. It's one of only two legislative chambers in the country where female lawmakers are a majority. Overall, women make up nearly half of the Colorado legislature. The growing involvement of women in politics nationally is often seen as a backlash against President Donald Trump. But in Colorado, as Benta Berkland reports, that trend started much earlier. Colorado's 34th female House member was recently sworn into office. She filled a vacancy after a Democratic man moved over to the Senate. 
I, state your name. I, Meg Froelich. Do solemnly swear that I will uphold the Constitution of the United States. Do solemnly swear Froelich that I will Froelich noted the that for the first the time States. in state history, women hold a majority in a legislative chamber in Colorado. I am delighted to join this body and this caucus which looks a lot like the state of Colorado. In recent years, Colorado's been seeing a trend of more women in the legislature. Part of it could be because of efforts from groups like Emerge Colorado. The group is affiliated with a national organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. Michal Rosenauer is Colorado's executive director. And the bump we've seen in Congress and at state legislatures this year is really about voters responding to powerful, smart, thoughtful women who are running. And we've got those women running right now because we've been investing in women candidates for a decade or more now. Rosenauer says last November, Emerge Colorado candidates won 15 out of 16 state-level races. Historically, the tricky part has been getting women to run in the first place. Women tend to need to be invited or asked to run five to seven times. Whereas I think if you're a man and you wake up and put your tie on in the morning and you think to yourself, hey, I kind of look like the president, it's much easier to see yourself at the table. Democratic Representative Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez was recently elected from Denver. She participated in Emerge Colorado's six-month training program. I would tell people you know, I'm thinking about running. And they would say, well, don't you have small children? As if to discourage me. That made me want to fight more. And I said, that's all the reason that I am doing this. The first female lawmakers in the nation were actually elected in Colorado in 1894. They were Republicans. But these days, the gains are mostly happening on the other side of the aisle. Last election, the GOP lost a net of two female state lawmakers. Republican Senator Vicki Marble of Fort Collins is now the only woman in her caucus. She says she's not worried about it. I think everyone brings a different style and approach. It doesn't matter about their gender. Republicans lack the same recruitment and training efforts for female candidates. But Marple says individual experiences are what's most important. There's a lot of qualified people here who have been in business. And I'll tell you what, no training program, I think, could give you the insight that they have. But over in the House, Republican Representative Lois Landgraf of Fountain says she would like her party to do more to encourage women to run for office. Because I do think women legislate a little differently than men. I think they look at things a bit differently. Some lawmakers say having more women in power changes what policies get debated and how business is conducted. Landgraf thinks training programs can also help women do a better job of supporting each other once they're in office. We're harder on ourselves and we're harder on our women legislators or if you're in the job market. Women are not always as kind to other women as they perhaps could be. This legislative session, for the third time in a row, the House has elected a female speaker. And the trend goes beyond elected officials. Women head the legislature's nonpartisan agencies and are the top staffers in the Senate and House. Another sign of the times, the Capitol's first-ever private lactation room will soon be up and running. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Scientists believe four basic elements shape nature. 
fire, water, earth, and air. But increasingly, there's another unpredictable and dangerous factor at play, the human element. Boulder filmmaker and climate researcher James Baylog says people have changed the equation. The human enterprise is based on a belief that we more or less are able to know what the future holds for us and for our children. Summers will be hot, winters will be cold. The land will be here, the ocean will be over there. But when those basic expectations change, it throws everything into disarray. Baylog chronicles the threat posed by people in his new documentary, The Human Element. And James, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Humans have been having an impact on the environment pretty much from the start. But you point to industrialization and now this age of technology, that it's not only as the planet is changing physically, but changing the way people think about nature. Why is that important? Well, we are in and of nature, and um, uh, there's been a lot of sort of poetic desire to accept that and appreciate that over over the past uh, centuries, if not millennia. But this new scientific understanding of our age of geologic time, which is now being called the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. brings us into um, sort of a scientific understanding of how uh, we are connected with nature. It's no longer a romantic, poetic desire. It's it's an acknowledgement that we are in and of nature. And why that's important is that if we have contributed to the impacts on nature, we can also all contribute to the positive uh, fixes that we need to do to improve the sustainability of, of the place where we live. Now, science has been warning us about humans' impact on climate change for a long time. For example, rising sea levels, which you've studied in the Arctic. We've seen more big and dangerous wildfires in Colorado, and we've also seen their enormous impact in California. Why is it important to talk about this distance between us and nature? Well, we've we've sort of mentally cast ourselves out of the garden, you know, and that, that goes maybe way, way back. You know what book I'm talking about a long time ago. This notion is that nature is somewhere else and humanity lives on another plane away from nature. And that that has been, I think, a flaw in our thinking. What we haven't realized is that what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. So if you bring yourself in relationship to nature, a part of nature, you have much greater motivation. You say, well, gosh, I'm, I'm not going to pollute that waterway because somewhere, some some place, some way, that pollution is going to come back and harm me. So it creates a whole different mindset for how you interact with the world around you. You say the human race is now just as elemental a force as what we think of as natural forces, air, water, fire, and earth. Of course, there's industrialization, but why is the human effect so much more now than it was in the past? Well, it's this uh, very interesting uh, combination, multiplication of factors. We have a bigger population. You multiply the size of our population by our needs for survival and our desire for affluence, and then you multiply that still further by this tremendous reach of technology that we have, and you, you, you put all those factors together, and that creates much, much, much greater uh, impact on nature than we had 
50 or 100, let alone 500 years ago. Now, we should say that humanity can be a force for good. Agriculture, industrial production, technology has fed people, given them shelter, made them mostly healthier. What's the balance? Well, that's the trick. That's what we're trying to figure out. And we're in this very interesting time of human history, I think, where we're we're evolving out of a certain perhaps more juvenile condition uh, when when we had the luxury of, of being uh, smaller populations with less impact and now we're we're actually in the process of realizing how how intense our impact can be and we we will continue to evolve trying to fix those impacts and fix our relationship with nature this is not something that's going to be solved by uh, by uh, a few uh, campaigns in the next five years. This is a project for the generations. But this generation is the first one to fully understand this. And uh, we have to set the course towards a more uh, sensible and sustainable future. You have a very interesting personal perspective. In the documentary, you visit the town in Pennsylvania where your grandfather worked in the coal mines. Let's hear a bit from that scene. We've all benefited from burning fuels like coal. And personally, I can't escape the fact that coal made me who I am today and brought life and death to my own family. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, that that was a huge breakthrough for me. And I should um, tell the audience what a little bit of that backstory is. Both of my grandfathers were coal miners. And, uh, one actually worked underground. The other one hauled coal. And my father's father was killed in a coal mining collapse in western Pennsylvania right before I was born. And um, um, I used to feel sheepish, if not shamed, mm-hmm. by that that heritage. And I didn't really understand that until we were working on this film. And we went back to the ancestral village where my my own father had grown up. And, uh, you know, he told me the stories and we looked at where the mine was and so on. And it just was this lightning bolt going off in my head, realizing, no, it's okay, Jim. You have to uh, acknowledge and accept that, 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 that that sacrifice and hard work and courage and determination that your grandfathers had was not something to be sheepish about. It's something to be proud of. That was a noble work that they did. And, and the task of us today is to accept, uh, uh, you know, embrace the fact that many of our ancestors were working in these different kinds of industries that had negative impacts from farming to fishing to logging to uh, all kinds of different things. So you say, okay, that was fine. That was what the previous generations had to do. And now, now we have a different job to do. And we have to move past that. That's how I reconcile it. In the film, you also visit an island called Tanger in Virginia with a population of 792 people. The economy is entirely based on commercial fishing. That's a business that been, that's been passed on for generations. Because of the rising sea levels, experts say the island could disappear in 25 to 50 years. Here's a local resident. When I walk on the beach, it's like I'm taking a trip in my past but I'm also walking into my grandchildren's future because we're one storm away from becoming a part of history. That sounds so hopeless. Can uh, Tanger be saved? 
Well, you ask some very good questions. <laughs> I must uh, compliment you, Andrea. The um, uh, Tangier's a problem. The only way it can be saved is by building a big seawall around it at great expense. And preliminary estimates a few years ago had put the cost of that seawall at something like $100 million, maybe $120 million. Where's that money supposed to come from to save 700, plus, 700 people? It's a problem. Um, <clears throat> that island floods on a regular basis uh, on the high tides. So it, 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 like many places along the coast, it can be saved in theory – in practice, it may be a problem because it's incredibly expensive to save places like Tangier, not to mention Norfolk, Virginia, uh, Miami Beach, uh, Charleston, uh, South Carolina, New Orleans. Incredibly expensive to save them. And as the the uh, uh, figure from the U.S. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers says, the character says in our film – we as a society will not have enough money to save all these places. So we're going to have to pick and choose in some places. We'll wind up not being saved. Boulder filmmaker and climate researcher James Baylog. In 2009, he served as a U.S. representative to the United Nations Conference on Climate Change. His newest documentary, The Human Element, will be released nationally on January 29th. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.